Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture to start off a new week. Thank you for being with us. Hope you had a good, safe weekend. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. We'll be talking about weather, hopefully a calmer week this week, as we'll talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We're also going to talk about enforcement of USMCA, especially the dairy provisions. We're going to talk with Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the North American Uh, or I should say the National Milk Producers Federation, I'll get that right, and uh, talk about the importance of uh, enforcing those rules. And a number of members of Congress have written to the uh, trade representative about uh, doing that. That was such a key part of, for agriculture, improvements in USMCA over the old NAFTA when it came to dairy provisions. So we'll see how that is going. And we'll take a look at livestock market Outlook. We'll talk with Michael Nebu with the American Farm Bureau Federation coming up on today's show. But right now, let's start things off talking about a number of things with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, how are you? I think I saw where there was uh, some more uh, tough, rough weather uh, around your part of the world, around Nebraska. Was that in your area or not? No, we, you know, we actually lucked out here in, in Nebraska. I mean, we had some storms roll through here yesterday, but it was, uh, it was nothing like what Iowa went through. We we were we for the most part lucked out. You know, we got in on the the first part of that derecho here on Monday, uh, but uh, crop lands here were virtually unscathed. Yeah, I saw some pictures on Twitter of uh, some hail uh, in parts of Nebraska over the weekend. So always a concern. You could, as last week showed us, you can have that big crop out there looking good, and uh, well, you. You just don't you hold your breath till it gets uh, harvested. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, I mean, Monday was an incredible, uh, incredibly shocking day. You know, this part of the state we didn't really get much, and then once that storm crossed into Iowa, it was just something to behold. I I don't know that. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of bizarre weather events here in the past few years, but that Monday storm was just uh, something something highly unusual. So a lot of requests now for some disaster assistance for those that hit got hit by the storm. Now, usually those things can take a long time. Maybe in an election year, it'll be speeded up somewhat. Yeah, you know, Mike, I think so. Iowa in particular, you know, they were hit the hardest, it seems, through the storm. And uh, the governor had to, had issued a, a request from the president to have, to have a declaration, a federal declaration. And I think uh, it's one of the expedited requests. And so... Uh, as we've seen in the Trump administration, they've been fairly quick to respond to these things, as we saw with the flooding last year in, in the spring uh, here in the Midwest. Uh, things seem to go a lot quicker uh, when it comes to that particular aspect of the administration. But, uh, yeah, I think it's going to take a while before we really understand the full effect of this storm. Uh, you know, the damage in Iowa was was really quite varied and, and quite unpredictable. Uh, from field to field, things really uh, look quite different. But, um it's going to be interesting to see how the how the harvest goes. Uh, you know, people are scrambling to find ways of of getting the crop out of the field and into some sort of storage, whether it be a bag or, or otherwise. And I think uh, by the end of harvest, we're going to have a greater handle on uh, you know what was really lost in the storm. Meanwhile, it sure looks more and more like the administration may be willing to wait till after the election. Before we, before we hear anything about EPA's handling of these uh, 
these gap year waivers, these small refinery exemptions for years past that they are reconsidering. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's not just that. It's, it's uh, you know, we were, were supposed to be hearing from EPA on its latest proposal for the renewable fuel standard volumes, uh, which they typically put out a proposal around June of every year. Uh, so far, that hasn't come. You know, we're, uh, we're halfway through August. Uh, there is some suggestion that perhaps the administration is going to wait beyond the election to even release that plan. And so I would suspect that uh, we're not going to really have any answers on these gap year waivers. I think it's something that's highly politically charged. Uh, you know, a decision one way or the other on the waivers uh, really could sway the vote in, in many respects. Um, you know, we've got ethanol on one side, we've got refining interest on the other, and both were supportive of the president in 2016. And so quite clearly, this is an issue the administration appears to be kicking down the road. And I, I suspect that we will hear nothing before November this is a fascinating election and a critical election that we'll be having in November. And as we watch this play out, one of the uh, the subplots here will be this particular issue, how the administration has yeah. tried to walk that line between oil and biofuels. And, you know, <laughs> when, the, when the vice president went to Iowa last week and, and talked about yeah. the uh, tried to tout the administration's ethanol policies, and while they were right, while he was right when he said, hey, we gave a E15 year round approval, that's true. But right. to to not even uh, hardly acknowledge the concerns that the, the industry right. has and people in states like Iowa have about these uh, uh, these small refinery exemptions, uh, I just think they're taking a, a big political risk here uh, when it comes to how folks like in Iowa will vote. And they seem to think uh, they're going to get by on this. I, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty risky. Yeah, no, I agree, Mike. And I think when you look at, uh, you know, what the administration has done for agriculture, you know, the vice president was right. You know, there's been a lot of deregulation. Uh, E15, mm-hmm. having that year round was a huge move. It's going to take some time to develop that side of the, uh, the market. But, yeah, to walk away from this uh, from this waivers issue and, and uh, you know, on top of that, not to issue a volumes uh, proposal and we're you know we're a couple months past that i think it is highly risky you know um usually it's it's kind of what have you done for me lately and i think people have really been upset and concerned with how the renewable fuel standards been been uh, treated here in the past couple of years um i think that is a highly risky move by the administration we'll see how that works out um you know it's hard to say where the president stands in rural america at the moment yeah i i think as you said, I think they had a lot of good things they could they could certainly point yeah. to deregulation, waters of the U.S., uh, a lot of those issues, uh, a lot of those things they could claim as accomplishments. But to go in there and talk ethanol and not acknowledge the concerns of the small refinery exemptions, like ignoring the elephant in the room. Yeah, and it's a big issue. You know, I mean, we're we're looking at four billion gallons of, of lost market for ethanol since 2016, uh, and there's really no indication the administration is going to walk away from. Uh, delivering more of these waivers. Uh, you know, we've got 85, 86 waivers pending. Um, you know, and even if you have a, a slice of those approved, it's going to be it's going to be really hurtful yeah. to the ethanol industry. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know how you walk away from this issue right at the election. Yeah, if he'd wanted to make a big splash in Iowa last week, he'd come yeah. in and said, "No more 
small refiner exemptions. They're on hold for the foreseeable future. That would have made a big splash, but of course it wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. played well with the oil industry. So again, that's the the issue that they're uh, they're dealing with and trying to walk that fine line. All right, Todd. Thanks a lot. Uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, talk again soon. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Todd Neely, DTN reporter. Well, let's talk weather. As I said, hopefully a calmer week ahead. And uh, we'll check in with DTN meteorologist Bryce Anderson next. Here we are mid-August. How does the forecast look for the rest of this month? And we'll start looking into September. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams let's talk weather with dtm meteorologist bryce anderson bryce uh, i said earlier hopefully it's going to be a calmer week weather-wise this week than last uh, anything uh, on the horizon we should be watching concerned about this week no mike uh this week is going to be a pretty quiet week uh, for just about everybody, uh, we might see a few late week shower and thunderstorm uh, cells develop uh, over the uh, northern part of the uh, Midwest and the far northeastern plains uh, from the Red River Valley in North Dakota uh, eastward into the Great Lakes and then maybe south to the Ohio Valley. But uh, nothing real, real uh, heavy in terms of uh, rainfall. Doesn't look real stormy. I think the uh, takeaway from that is that, uh, yes, it's going to be uh, quieter and uh, following the big uh, dare ratio from last week and uh, all of that uh, horrific damage, uh, that certainly is a favorable note. But, um, you know, in the, in the crop weather scene, uh, there still are um, uh, quite a few acres that need to have one or two more decent rains in order to really bring things home. And uh, particularly for soybeans, but also for corn, um, you know, corn that's in the dough stage can still make use of moisture. And I don't think that uh, we can completely, um, you know, discount the idea that uh, this drier pattern that we're in is not the best uh, when you think about the late season needs the crops have. The ratio brought a lot of damage, did not bring a lot of rain, though. No, it didn't. And, you know, that... uh, yeah, I, the the rainfall uh, discussion with that big storm was one that, uh, frankly, had me shaking my head because I, I saw some comments that uh, there was, you know, there were some showers and, and uh, areas that did not get the terrible wind uh, received some uh, favorable rainfall. And that, that truly was just uh, completely off base because uh, when these big storms happen, um, my goodness, they, they truly act like hurricanes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, writing uh, and commentary that's been done on the storm from last week, including some that I put out that, uh, that noted that the wind speeds that hit in uh, central and eastern Iowa did have hurricane force of over 100 miles an hour that were sustained. And uh, when storms do that, all of the energy that um, that goes into sustaining that type of storm makes it uh, pretty much um, uh, of no use 
in terms of being a rainfall maker. Uh, rains when there are periods of uh, showers that maybe don't have an identified storm cell to uh, to uh, focus on, uh, because then the the rainfall is released and, and so forth. But these systems, uh, when you get that uh, kind of wind that uh, blows through, they just don't bring a whole lot of rain. And then, of course, they move so fast that you don't have a chance for the rain to develop anyway. So, yeah, uh, there was not a whole lot of moisture out of that system. I've noticed here in Illinois where it's been a somewhat cooler August than usual. It, it kind of looks like the when I look at the corn crop and I start thinking of, you know, mid-August and usually big heat, we'd start seeing uh, the, you know, the crop starting to change and we'd be looking at the bottom of those plants and uh, starting to see them kind of uh, dying or turning turning brown. But I, it seems like with the cooler weather, uh, we've had, it's like the crop has kind of slowed uh, the, the, and it's not, uh, you know, maybe not, the harvest may not be coming quite as quickly as we thought it would uh, a couple weeks ago. Well, I think that's right, and uh, and that is one benefit of this uh, milder pattern that we have on temperatures, because a lot of temperatures in the Midwest this week are going to be uh, near to even a little bit below normal. And uh, with that, uh, you, you do slow down the, uh, the dry down, the, the overall maturity rate of the plant. Maybe that brings a little bit of extra time for grain to, to put on weight, uh, to add a little bit more heft, if you will, to the kernels of corn and uh, to the, um, you know, to the, uh, the girth of uh, soybeans that are in the pods. On the other hand, you need to have some moisture for that plant to work with, too, in order to um, take advantage of that extra time. And so that's where the, uh, the other side of this uh, cooler or seasonal but drier pattern comes in because, you know, we're not necessarily getting the uh, best of both worlds. Now, if you look farther out, it doesn't appear to this uh, slower trend toward maturity as putting crops in a in a potential uh, situation where a freeze uh, would cause any sort of uh, a premature end to the season. I don't think we're looking at that, but it certainly is a, a slower uh, situation, a slower scenario for these uh dry down phases that we're seeing as we look ahead to the next couple weeks. Talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson, we do have some big heat down in Texas and that part of the country. Yeah, we do. Uh, the The cotton crop in Texas is uh, not going to be a good one this year because uh, most of the high plains area of Texas has uh, labored underneath either above or much above normal temperatures through much of the growing season. And even in areas that have uh, irrigation, uh, I don't think that the available water, the allocations have um, have made up for the uh, extent of dryness that we've seen. And then, of course, um, areas that are non-irrigated uh, have had uh, a real uh, difficult season. So uh, that's, that's a real problem. And, you know, looking ahead, too, Mike, I don't know how the uh, – uh, pasture uh, situation is going to uh, shape up for uh, for rangeland in uh, that part of the country in the southwestern plains later this year, uh, and along with that, the uh, situation for uh, soil moisture ahead of planting the winter wheat crop uh, could be better. Uh, Kansas has had some benefit on rainfall here in the last couple three weeks, but Colorado, uh, part of Oklahoma, Texas, uh, it hasn't been 
it hasn't been the best. And so I think as we get farther into the end of August, into September, we get toward wheat planting, uh, there's going to be more questions asked about how that moisture availability is actually shaping up. The eastern corn belt has uh, kind of been challenged with moisture for moisture throughout this growing season. They've not received as much as some other areas. No, they have not. Um, I think Illinois got some uh, real benefit here in mid to late July with uh, rainfall that developed. We've seen parts of the Ohio Valley uh, get along pretty well. But um, in the state of Ohio and uh, then into Michigan, uh, this rain pattern has not been the best. And even though the yield potential still looks uh, you know, somewhat promising, uh, I don't think that uh, that we can, you know, c- completely discount again uh, the impact of this uh, kind of pervasively drier trend that we're going to see pretty much across the country over the next week. I mean, it's uh, it, it's pretty remarkable to take a look at uh, how the uh, rainfall patterns have uh, really been quite deficient over the last two weeks. I mean, uh, we are looking at uh, quite a few areas uh, over the kind of Beltline of the Midwest, uh, where the uh, precipitation has been either completely non-existent or the uh, or the amounts have been, you know, just maybe no more than about a quarter to a half an inch, and that's about it. That's not going to get it when you have to uh, keep everything uh, kind of going into the end of the season, and we know how that uh, can be uh, pretty crucial in terms of kind of taking the top edge off yield prospects. Yeah, we know there's some great crops out there, and uh, but there are these areas of concern about how we're going to finish this crop season. Yes, yes, there are. Uh, and and um, the uh, the past week or the past two weeks, we've seen the the uh, percentage of uh, of precipitation that relates to the average amount be quite high in uh, southern Illinois, kind of the immediate Ohio Valley. But over the remainder of the northern half to two-thirds of Illinois, and then north all the way into north-central Wisconsin, uh, that accumulated uh, precip, if you compare it to average, has been well under 50%. And uh, that's, you know, like I say, that's, that's moisture that, that uh, certainly would translate direct into uh, this uh, final push that we see. And about how uh, we're going to see crop conditions uh, total uh, for today. I wouldn't be surprised that we see a little bit of a pullback, uh, certainly in corn after everything that's happened. But then uh, there's also a question that I think is legitimate about whether the uh, numbers that USDA talked about for yields last week might not be the highest of the season. Uh, with uh, everything that we've seen and continue to experience uh, as we go through this uh, month of August. Yeah, it's kind of like I talked about last week. It's not in the bin yet. All right, Bryce, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next week. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Up next, we talk USMCA and dairy with Shauna Morris with the National Milk Producers Federation. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, one of the 
Upgrades to NAFTA in the new USMCA was supposed to be in the area of dairy, and we want to get an update to see how that is going here in the early stages of USMCA. We're joined now by Shauna Morris, Vice President Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Shauna, thanks for joining us. How's it going so far here in the early stages of USMCA from a dairy perspective? Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, I'd say in the early stages of USMCA, uh, we're still hopeful about the tremendous promise that this agreement has for dairy farmers and dairy manufacturers. But it's also very clear from this early start of the process so far that a lot more work's ahead of the U.S. in order to get the full benefits of those uh, commitments that we extracted from Canada as well as from Mexico under USMCA. Uh, the, the big thing was more market access, especially to Canada, for U.S. dairy products. Are we seeing that? Have have we seen significant changes in Canada to allow that to happen? You're right. That was one of the really big pieces, uh, in addition to the pricing class changes related to Class 7 and, and similar provisions that Canada made under USMCA. We don't have the trade data yet um, to see exactly how things began to play out in the first month in which USMCA was implemented, so last month during July. But what we have seen so far that has us and clearly a number of members of Congress concerned as well is that the rules for accessing those exports to, to Canada, the tariff rate quota rules for how they're divvied out to companies that want to make use of that market access, certainly don't seem to be in compliance with the commitments Canada made under the agreement. And that's one of the key concerns that we've been highlighting. So some red flags there and uh, a bipartisan group of uh, members of Congress have sent a letter to the trade representative urging a strict enforcement of USMCA on these dairy provisions. Exactly. We saw over 100 members of Congress uh, send that message to USTR and USDA last week, which we think is really welcome. Uh, and another thing I note about that message is that it was really very strongly bipartisan because I think there is broad-spread support uh, from both Republicans and Democrats in Congress and certainly a, a strong commitment from this administration, we know, too, to making sure that we actually get the full benefit of this agreement that the U.S. works so hard to actually secure. If I could just touch on another couple of provisions that that letter highlighted that are of really strong importance for dairy. Uh, you mentioned one, the market access issues, uh, but a couple of other points that are really key to being able to harness the full potential of this agreement are how Canada actually translates its commitments to eliminate Class 7 and put new pricing policy commitments in place into practice. We still have yet to see how that's going to translate into the real world. Uh, and then on the Mexico side, a key benefit and plus up that dairy saw under USMCA versus NAFTA was Mexico's commitment to safeguard and protect the use of a number of common cheese names. But we likewise don't know how they actually plan to implement that into their own regulations. And that's going to be key for ensuring that we get those benefits in practice. Well, does USMCA have any timelines in it that they need to go by, or could this, could this drag on? Uh, well, the... The first piece of it, the market access one, uh, and how Canada handles that through its tariff rate quota allocation, 
that's something Canada is already overdue on. It issued rules when it uh, implemented the agreement at the start of July, but those rules don't square with the commitment. So they need to be fixing those yesterday. Uh, the Class 7 and pricing program-related changes, there's a little bit more lead time on. The agreement gave Canada six months to implement a number of those commitments. Uh, so, so that still is, uh, at least for a number of those promises, in the work and, and wait to see area. Uh, but certainly we think that a forward-leaning approach to proactively engaging with Canada on them is going to yield a lot more benefits than simply taking uh, a backward-leaning approach from that. There's no specific timeline on the Mexico pieces, uh, but clearly it's something that we want to see squared away so that our exporters have those commitments on paper in the Mexican regulations and know they can rely on them. We're talking with Shauna Morris, Vice President of Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Shauna, this reminds us that you can have a trade deal and it can go into effect on a certain date like this did, 1st of July. But that doesn't mean everything just happens all at once. It, it does take time. It's a, it's a process. It absolutely is, and one that it's really critical for the industry to remain engaged in working together with our government, uh, both the administration and congressional supporters, so that what we think we got uh, translates into what we actually do get at the end of the process. Because when you think about it from an agricultural standpoint, USMCA was billed more as a, an update, a, 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 you know, not a significant change from NAFTA. The areas of most change would probably be for uh, your segment of agriculture, dairy. Uh, so it's it's critical to to keep pushing to have enforcement of that. Do you get do you get any response from the trade representative's office about what they are doing as far as making sure that uh, this is enforced? I think the responses that they've given to, to Congress, um, there hasn't been a response to the letter from late last week issued yet, but it has been a topic that members of Congress have raised with Ambassador Lighthizer at previous interactions with him over the last few months, uh, has been that they're very well aware of the importance of these issues uh, and that they are talking to the Canadians in particular uh, and committed to enforcing these steps. I think that it's messages like this letter from over 100 members of Congress that continue to send the right message to our trading partners about the need to be dealing in good faith with USTR as they're working to sort through these issues with them. If there's not response from Canada and Mexico on these issues, and it doesn't look like they're addressing them, at least to the U.S., the way the U.S. reads uh, the rules for USMCA, then, then what's the course of action we can take? Well, if at the end of uh, a process of trying to work through these issues uh, with our USMCA partners, we don't see satisfaction. USMCA has enforcement tools. Uh, it does provide countries, including the U.S., uh, the ability to bring a court case effectively through the parameters of the agreement uh, in order to be able to enforce those commitments. So, you know, hopefully uh, you're able to get there through direct interaction and, and bilateral discussions to sort through issues, but those, you know, genuine uh, dispute settlement provisions that were in USMCA are critical, as they are in any of our trade agreements, to make sure that you have the hammer there uh, to enforce yourself if you have to. Yeah, hopefully it can be done outside of the judicial system, but uh, that that is an alternative that is still there. So, in other words, I guess the takeaway from this, when USMCA started last month, that didn't 
did not mean that the Class 7 system in Canada came to an end? There's still remnants of it? There's still some pieces related to that, correct, that Canada needs to, uh, that the agreement allows Canada some time to fully uh, phase out. Again, six months was the time clock given for Canada to be able to transition some of those Class 7 related pieces of its system into full compliance. Uh, on the tariff rate quota side of it, though, as I mentioned, that was due to be in place and in alignment with USMCA commitments as of the 1st of July already. So we'll keep a close watch on that. You mentioned these uh, these names. <laughs> uh, we've talked about this before. This these are this is such a key issue about who owns the names of these products. That's a big part of these trade issues, isn't it? It absolutely is, especially as our industry is working to export more high-value products uh, and increasingly a lot more of our cheese to foreign markets. Being able to call the product what it actually is is a pretty fundamental right to being able to market it effectively. Uh, and that's absolutely nowhere more true than in our largest export market, Mexico. China, everybody's watching closely what China buys from us. What are they buying as far as our dairy products? Well, we've seen a, a bit of an uptick uh, from recent trade data in some of the buying from China, uh, the way in particular, some other dairy products as well. Uh, I'd say, though, unfortunately, we really haven't seen a significant surge yet of buying from China in order to deliver on the very large commitment numbers that it promised under the U.S.-China Phase 1 agreement. Uh, the progress that we've seen from them has been rather, in our space at least, much more on the regulatory side. Uh, there were a number of non-tariff commitments that China made under that deal uh, related to dairy trade, and it has followed through on each of those to quite positive effect. Uh, now our eyes are, of course, on those outstanding pieces of looking to see significant and sustained upward trajectory of dairy buying as well. So technically they're following the deal, but the, the hope is it's going to lead to much more, right? I think that sums it up well. <laughs> okay. It seems like we're all, we all continue to watch China, see what they do, what they buy, and uh, dairy is a big part of that as well. All right, Shana, and we'll keep our eyes on USMCA and uh, the issues with Mexico and Canada when it comes to dairy. Thank you for the update. Thanks for having me. All right, Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Yeah, we don't talk a lot about USMCA uh, because of what was going on with COVID. The, the start of it last month kind of almost slipped by without too much fanfare, and now we got to make sure we keep an eye on as far as enforcement of the trade deal. Up next, we're going to talk livestock markets. Uh, for We'll talk dairy. We'll talk uh, hogs and cattle as well. We'll talk with Michael Nevue with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Where are we right now with the uh, livestock markets and what is his outlook? We'll get that next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Livestock markets have been really hard hit by COVID-19. Want to get some uh, livestock market outlook from Michael Nevue, economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Michael, thanks for joining us. 
where are we right now with livestock markets uh, as far as supply chain and and uh, impacts of COVID-19? Well, you know, over the last five months, the, the mantra everybody's been hearing over and over again is COVID-19, COVID-19. And unfortunately, I still think that's going to be sticking with us a little bit into the future. Uh, throughout the entire supply chain, while uh, in terms of cattle and hogs, slaughter is mostly uh, recovered, uh, many times up to 95, even higher percent of capacity uh, above year-ago levels. We still have a huge backlog of animals in the system. Now, that being said, it's getting better. We have made a lot of progress over the last month or so, uh, but you know, depending on which analyst you talk to and who, who you're going to listen to on this one, uh, most of them are thinking that we're still going to have that hangover of animals backed up in the system uh, for at least another month or even two, depending on how quickly we can, we can move uh, that backlog of animals and, and get the feedlots a little bit more current. Um, on that one. Uh, poultry, uh, not as uh, caught up on the uh, slaughter side of things. They're still uh, lagging behind year-ago levels. Um, that's not necessarily due to uh, labor issues. Some of it is due to labor issues at the plants. Uh, their further processing does require a lot of that elbow-to-elbow work, so the social distancing guidelines they have in place is slowing them down. Uh, but it's also to do with uh, back when everything was disrupted, they were breaking a lot of eggs and, you know, trying to slow the flow of animals through the system. So they're also having to get caught up on that side of things. What about the hog market? Uh, hog markets, again, uh, largely recovered. Uh, that's one where, uh, unlike beef, and I'm not saying it's easy, but on, on the cattle side of things, you, you can kind of slow down the animals. Uh, we're still trying to get a figure of the estimates of how many animals on the hog side uh, had to be depopulated. So, uh, you know, I've seen estimates as high as 2 million, uh, even more, uh, actually quite a bit more. Uh, we're, still, we're still trying to figure that one out, but that's one where, uh, you know, the, the backup of animals in the system was a lot harder to deal with, and it had a much bigger impact at the farm level in terms of hogs. All the steps we've taken now to get these plants back up and going – um, I mean, we live in a time where you just wonder when the next outbreak might happen and, and kind of slow things down or shut things down again. Are we better prepared now than we were a few months ago? Uh, you know, I I don't want to sound too optimistic, but, you know, I, I think we are, at least in terms of having had to work through this event. Uh, I'm not going to say the next time something like this happens, we're going to handle it perfectly. Uh, these kind of shots to the system are, are exactly that. No one can really predict them when they're going to happen. Uh, but the fact that we've just dealt with this, uh, and to be honest, I, I think the supply chain did, all things considered, not a terrible job in adjusting. Uh, the, most people did not expect slaughter capacity to recover nearly as quickly as it did. A lot of us were expecting that hangover to last a lot further into the year. Uh, I, I uh, not not to pat them on the back too much, but I, I do think that they, they were able to adjust fairly quickly. Uh, you saw some regulatory changes as well, FDA and USDA loosening some of those regulations in terms of, you know, uh, nutrition labeling to try and make it to where we can get uh, some of that product that was flowing into the food service channels, into the retail channels more easily. Uh, it's not exactly like flipping a switch, but they're able to, to recover a little bit. Um, in terms of looking forward, I'm honestly a little bit more concerned about the not – the effect of another COVID right now uh, in terms of supply chain disruption, but uh, the effects of the economy. Uh, if we're entering a huge recession and you have unemployment levels at record highs, 
it's going to be a lot a lot of people with a lot less money in their pocket and when it comes to figuring out where to spend those dollars something like beef even pork to a certain extent are going to suffer at the retail level because uh, those protein products tend to be more of a luxury product relative to other things like poultry or, or other options as well we're talking with michael nevue farm bureau economist michael what's your price outlook uh, price outlook, um, you know, given given the lack of animals we had placed on feed earlier in the year, uh, coming up later in the fall, uh, early winter, you might see uh, some pretty decent recovery in terms of uh, fed cattle coming through. Uh, still not super optimistic. Uh, unfortunately, you know, prices react down very quickly. Uh, they do not react up as quickly as they should in terms of uh, supply chain issues. All right. What about hogs? Hogs. Uh, that's also, again, depending on how we're able to work through these through these issues, uh, what farmers are able to see. You see the cutout uh, has uh, largely dropped back down. I think that's going to continue to put some downward pressure moving forward. Uh, same on the beef side. I should have mentioned that earlier. Uh, I, I think it's going to be, you know, a little bit more challenging on the hog side, but it's, it's still going to be a challenging environment for our producers moving forward. And what's your dairy market outlook? Uh, dairy is a complicated monster right now. Um, you, we've seen a lot of the uh, programs put in place, such as DMC, even DRP, uh, not paying out these last few months, even though farmers are having record negative producer price differentials, taking money out of their milk checks. Uh, but whenever you look at the all-milk price or the uh, the prices that you're seeing on the futures market, they're, they're really high because you've seen that rally in the cheese markets, but that money is not necessarily getting back, passed back to the farmers. That rally in the cheese markets is due to a lot of people stepping back in when they thought the economy was going to start opening back up, as well as uh, tied back some to the government purchase program uh, that they put in place in response to COVID. So Again, uh, dairy markets, a fair, fairly positive outlook, but that money being passed back to the farmer, a little bit less uh, optimistic on that one. Yeah, still a lot of questions, and you mentioned the demand side of it will be interesting as we go into the fall uh, to see. A lot of it depends on the economy, and that lot depends on COVID. Absolutely. I think, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hard-pressed to give you uh, solid answers when you ask about price forecasts and where things are going forward because there's just so much uncertainty out there. Uh, we don't know, you know, colleges are reopening. That's a big food service channel. Uh, but we don't know if they're going to close back down in the future. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Yep, a lot of uncertainty for sure. Michael, thank you very much for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Michael Nevue. That wraps it up for today as we kick off a new week. Thank you so much for joining us. Be safe and be sure to tune in again tomorrow right here on AOA. AOA.